Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. I'm back. I can't believe I'm back. Honestly, it's weird. Like breaking out the microphone and the headphones, it feels nostalgic in a way. I haven't used them in so long. I'm not kidding you. When I pulled out the headphones, there was a cobweb on them. (laughs) So it's definitely been the longest minute since I've been with you guys. And I miss this. I miss being able to communicate with y'all in in the weird ways that we do. So we're doing seasons now. This is technically season two, although that seems kind of weird because that means season one had 80 episodes and I assure you season two will not. But the way the new seasons are going to work out is we're going to do like 15 episodes, take a break, and then One of the people on the New Blood Universe team, Frick, uh, who has That Spooky Life podcast that's also been in hiatus for a minute, will do 15 episodes. So you'll still get some spooky content coming from New Blood Universe. Then Follow the Woo will come back with 15 episodes and we'll just keep kind of going like that. So we each give each other a break, but you never have a break of spooky content. And That Spooky Life is a great podcast that you should go check out. The format is a little bit different than mine, but that's even better in my opinion, because then you get all kinds of variety throughout the year. And if you're like, what the fuck is New Blood Universe? That is the paranormal production company that I and many others have created. We're working on two docuseries right now and have a bunch of projects on the back burner. In fact, far too many projects on the back burner. Now, Follow the Woo is presented by New Blood Universe, newblood.tv, if you want to go check out what we're up to. And that just means that this is sort of the hub for all paranormal stuff that's coming out. And you'll see a lot of crisscross of things like in interviews with people for the podcast. Those might also be people that we go on set with when we're filming for future seasons and things like that. So there's going to be some overlap. These first seven or eight, I think, episodes are so old. Like these interviews happened, you know, months and months and months ago, but they're still incredible interviews and you need to hear them. But it's good to be back. And we're going to be back as it was before. Every Woo Wednesday, you're going to get a little nugget. How are you doing? Oh, man. What's going on? Are you okay? Are we okay? I don't know. It's been rough. And and I try to make light of it. But I, I know the world does seem to be burning. And we just start paying a rent and clocking into work and shit. And it just seems so far-fetched, especially if you're neurodivergent like me. My heart goes out to you. I just don't know often how to fit in here. Anywho, let's talk about the guests today. Again, this is an old interview, but it's still amazing. It's been aging like a fine wine, and it's going to be a great reminder that you should buy these humans' book. It's called A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, and it's by Leanna Renee Heber and Andrea Janes, and they're both just fucking great. I'm not even kidding. You will hear it in my voice when you hear this interview. They're wonderful 
people with such a fresh take on ghost hunting in general. And I loved this conversation. In fact, re-listening to it after so many months was such a treat. And it reminded me of so many things that I forgot about this book. You got to check it out. But we're going to talk about it, okay? Let me tell you about Leanna. Leanna and Andrea, okay? Leanna is an award-winning author and paranormal history expert, a regular speaker at sci-fi, fantasy, and paranormal conventions. She's appeared on film and TV shows, including Mysteries at the Museum and Beyond the Unknown. She's a three-time PRISM Award winner for her debut novel, The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker, and a Daphne du Maurier Award finalist for Darker Still. I might have butchered that. I don't know what, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. After earning a BFA in theater performance and a focus study in the Victorian era, she spent many years in the professional regional theater circuit, skills that serve her well as a speaker and a ghost tour guide for Burroughs of the Dead in New York, which you should totally check out. I haven't yet, but it is on my bucket list. You'll have all the links and everything as well in the episode notes for this episode. Andrea Janes is the founder and owner of Burroughs of the Dead, New York City's premier ghost tour company, which has been featured in the New York Times, Jezebel, Bustle, Cosmopolitan, Huffington Post, Gothamist, and NPR.org, among others. Andrea is also the author of the YA novel Glamour and several short horror stories and a fiction horror novel, Burroughs of the Dead, the inspiration for her company. Leanna is Mulder vibes. You'll totally pick that up. In this interview, she says, I have always been haunted. And then, of course, Andrea is the Scully vibes. She's not one to sleep in a haunted hotel. And one of her best quotes of this interview is, and I love this, there is no joining witch. You are a witch. If you look within yourself and find your own power. I was like, oh, my. I love it because there's so much gatekeeping around the witchcraft community, and I'm constantly shouting this from the rooftops. Actually, the episode art for this episode is my personal copy of this book. And so you'll see in the art that there's all these little post-it notes and dog ears and shit, and that's really just because I nerded out on this book. It is precisely the intersection that I am most interested in when it comes to paranormal investigation through an intersectional feminist, anti-capitalist lens. And fuck, it's just, if you're a paranormal investigator, if you're into spooky shit, then you should just read this book. It's so good. We also talk about this idea that we're all haunted. And I love that. Like Our minds are fucked up and they just fucking haunt us and cause us to do and say horrible things sometimes. I mean it in the way also that like we aren't really entirely of this world. We are liminal. We're just passing through in the same way that a ghost might. And if you've listened to a lot of my episodes before, you'll recognize this other topic that comes up a lot, um, came up a lot in Jen Marie's episode. The, that episode's called Neurodivergent Witchcraft, which is a banger. Everybody loves that one. Uh, Jen Marie's fucking awesome. But it's this question, what if the mundane is the illusion and the magic is the reality? That is a question that I try to ask myself every day, that I try to ask people that I meet all the time. What if this is the illusion and the magic is the reality? And we've been trained to forget. And if I were to pick a mission statement, not just for the podcast, 
but for New Blood Universe, for this paranormal production company of witches and weirdos and queers, I would say it is training ourselves and each other to remember that the magic is the reality. It's de-brainwashing ourselves. Our purpose is to remember and then help others remember. And when I have a day where I'm like, what am I doing? Is this worthwhile? I have to remember that. That's what we're doing, period. I could cry. Okay. We also talk about the Bell Witch. I I think I'm going to have to do like a deep dive episode because a lot of people have asked about it and we're going to investigate the Bell Witch. But just so you have like a, a little bit of a background, the Bell Witch is a legend centered on the 19th century Bell family of Northwest Robertson County, Tennessee. So there was a farmer, John Bell Sr. He resided with his family along the Red River in an area currently near the town of Adams. And according to the legend, from 1817 to 1821, his family and the local area came under attack by a mostly invisible entity that was able to speak, affect the physical environment, and shapeshift. I have not gone personally, but it, it is definitely on our list. I will say here because it just reminded me, if you haven't joined our Discord, you should probably do that if you're interested in guiding us to where you want us to go in future seasons of Inhuman Beings. We do have a channel in there that is, I think it's called Locations. I don't know. You'll 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 know. Like it, it whatever it says something like that. Uh, and you can go in there and plop in places that you'd like us to go. And and we really, really take those seriously and go in there and check them all the time and add them to our list. So also join our discord because it's fucking fun to talk with over 400 weirdos about weird shit. So there you go. Okay. All right. Let's get into this old ass fucking interview, but it's still a doozy with Leanna and Andrea and talk about some fucking ghosts and stuff. Okay. Okay. You're amazing. When I heard about your book, I didn't really know what was happening. I just was contacted about it and sent a copy. And I just have to say that it was so incredibly refreshing to read a book that's about the weird through like a feminist anti-capitalist lens. I was like, these are my people. Where have you been my whole life? (laughs) Well, and I mean it too, because every time I watch a fucking paranormal show, I'm so disappointed in the white male conservative perspective. And so this was just like, refreshing is an understatement. I just love this book. Thank you so much. And that's, yeah, we really were realizing there's kind of a dearth of this particular intersection that's out there. You know, I don't like to sort of say we were the first people doing something, but like this particular angle for just curating ghost stories that are just women, not women writing ghost stories, because there are collections of women who have written ghost stories fictionally. But this kind of deep dive in this particular way, we were like, wow, that really doesn't exist out there. We can be saying some things in this book that we say on our tours, and hopefully that will be refreshing to those who have been looking for this particular angle because it is out there and it's important. And it's, it's you know, it is such a fabric of really what's going on with ghost stories, the possibilities that ghost stories can offer as, as not just cautionary tales for life, but like you're saying, economically, societally, all those kinds of things. So thank you for, thank you for saying that. Yeah. And we're here, just so you know, we, 
are here. It's just that we don't right. have the like the central voice. We don't yeah. have, you know, but I I think the tide is changing a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. right now I'm working on two queer paranormal shows that are like nothing like people have seen before. So fantastic. Yeah. So, and that's something that I actually want to talk to you about at the end of this. So I want to start with your woo backgrounds, as I call it. Liana, I think you said, oh, can I call you Liana or should I? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I just, I write under my full name and that is actually a paranormal story about why I write under my full name, but Liana is good. Okay, cool. You said, I think in your intro, quote, I have always been haunted. So tell me about if like you want to just go each one of you talk about like, how did this start? Since childhood, to borrow what Andrea said yesterday in an interview, like sort of born spooky. And I think that's the case for a lot of us in this business one way or another, depending on any level of experiences. I happen to have a pretty distinct paranormal experience when I was very, very young. And this this example is not in the book because I it was almost just too personal to come right out and say in this edition, if we do a follow-up volume, which we're hoping to do, I, I might say it in that. I'm not sure. It's much more personal to relate this story when I'm just talking to someone in conversation. So when I was about five or six, I had a really, really, really dangerously high fever when my great-grandmother, who I'm named for, was passing. We were, as a family, we're going to go up and visit her in this transitional time. But with my fever, my mother stayed home with me. My father went up because it was his grandmother. And so my mom was debating about taking me to the ER with this high fever when my fever broke and I went into a, a rhapsodic ode talking about God and the angels using words I had never been taught. And it was this otherworldly experience. My fever broke. I was fine. And then we got the call that that was the time that my great grandmother had passed. So in, in that particular regard, I think that like there was a certain door that opened and I've always sort of felt that great grandma has been kind of watching over me ever since. And I really, for me, that early concept of a spirit was actually also equated with a guardian angel, which was kind of an interesting thing of like, I was already using a woo or a spooky concept in a way that actually was very loving and gentle and kind. And I think that there's a lot of room for that in the ghost story. Yeah. It seems like, well, in my experience, everyone that I've spoken with on the podcast and in beyond, this is what I was doing before I even created a podcast. I was always asking people about the weirdest shit that's ever happened to them. <laughs> and I, I found that the people, almost everyone, even the normies, you know, almost everyone has a paranormal experience like mm-hmm. hidden in their back pocket that that they just have to be reminded about or or sort of like be coaxed into sharing with the public. So yeah, that's fascinating. So that kicked it off for you. Andrew, what about you? Did you have a, a childhood experience like that or? It was, but mine was a little more, it was, it was a little more mediated. You know, it's really funny. Liana, I was thinking about how we keep talking about how we were born spooky and how we were spooky kids and everything. And we have never once done the thing where we do the Poe quote from childhood hour, I have not been as others were, I have not seen. We just like never quoted alone by Poe, which is really funny. But yeah, from childhood's hour, I have not been as others were, as they say, ironically, because there are thousands of us. I have never had a really jarring, profound, paranormal encounter, except honestly, for some precognitive dreams that have been very uncanny. But for the most part, it was just me and a bunch of like ghost books and flashlights and tiptoeing around in basements <laughs> and like, you know, clutching these garishly illustrated books to my chest and hoping for something and really being fascinated with ghosts and the idea of ghosts and wanting to see something, but just really, I don't know. I think I'm just not tuned into that frequency. 
perhaps, or again, maybe it's just manifests in different ways with me. Definitely. But you are though. The, see, that's, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But like there's, uh, Andrea sort of downplays some of the things that have happened to her that are like legitimately paranormal experiences. So it's just that there's, there is a slightly more scully vibe with uh, Andrea and I am, I am full Mulder, <laughs> 110%. I'm not going to tell Andrea's spooky moments. That's up to her to say so. But like they, they have existed and they are, they are inexplicable. But I, w- I will say that we do approach a haunted history of invisible women with the concept of we're not going to tell you what to believe. And we don't come in as people who are saying, okay, you have to believe this, or we are drawing a line in the sand about our own beliefs. Like we really try to keep our beliefs kind of secondary. Obviously we have opinions, capital O opinions. You will see them. They are, they're very passionately expressed in the book, but opinions about history in terms of when it comes to the paranormal, the stuff we can't prove, we really do go in with a skeptic's eye because a skeptic's eye will take in everything. And then when all else fails, then there is room for the paranormal because I think we're such imaginative creatures as human beings. We're so imaginative and we didn't want this book to be led by imagination only. We really wanted for the sake of these women who were trying to honor for their real lives first and foremost, and then for as many documented things as their ghost stories will allow that we can find. And sometimes there's not a whole lot there. So we just talk about, well, what does this life mean and how can we extrapolate on that? Yeah, I think that's an important point. The shows that I was talking to you about that were in pre-production and post-production on one, queer and feminine presenting. And one of the central things that we're constantly talking about is this is not us proving to you anything. We just want to learn and we want to share our like insatiable curiosity and also like our nerdiness with as many people as possible. It's again, refreshing is the word that I've like written so many times. And look at this book. Look. <laughs> Like, oh, I, I nerded out. Oh, we're cool. so honored. We're so honored. I, I know that that isn't that gorgeous. Yeah. I think the idea of proof is in itself very like Cartesian, you know, Eurocentric masculine. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that rationality and like the submission of the natural world to the rigidity of proving things is kind of aesthetical <laughs> to like my, you know, this whole vibe. So, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. I've been reading books again. <laughs> I know. Dangerous ideas in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we like all forget how to read book or beat there? Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Something that you said, Liana, I believe is like when your grandmother passed was that it was this gentle sort of beautiful perspective instead of it being scary. And you mentioned that a lot throughout the book, this idea that the intimacy of ghost stories and hauntings being beautiful versus scary or something like that. And then you talk about being paranormal chaplains, I think is what mm-hmm. you say. Yeah, that's a big thing, too, that I try to do with the podcast and, and all the projects that we're working on is why does it have to be scary? Right. Who decided that. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, is there ever a time that it's scary to you? And if it is, how do you unpack that? Yes. 14 West 10th Street is scary. (laughs) So yeah. So there's certain locations. My unreliable narrator chapter is very personal and it is very it is all about this haunted house that hates me and that I hate too. There's sort of a detente when I'm in front of it. Yeah, we are not fans of each other. So there is negative energies and there's negative presences there. And so I do think that in this business, you have to shield yourself. You have to protect your own energy, just like you would against an abusive person, just like you would against someone who's not respecting your boundaries as a human person in the moment. Energy is the same way. You have to protect yourself. 
that particular dress has a terrible energy. And that's something that Andrea has also felt. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do you want to speak to that moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I felt it walking into the building. It feels like the building is pushing back, like the air has resistance. It feels more like water than it does air. Sorry, I'm not the only one that's felt it. People on my tours have felt it as well. Yeah. And like it's, it's kind of nauseating energy is how I would describe it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that those are the things that we're sort of like we try to be aware of in places that are where something just feels off. And so there are things that like Andrea and I will not do and will not go into. We have our own sort of boundaries about things that that are billed as scary haunted attractions that are capitalizing on death and suffering and various other things. Like there's some ways that people pitch haunted prisons and haunted asylums and stuff that I just am like, no. Yeah. yeah. I had somebody ask me once if I was ever going to do ghost tours of Willowbrook Asylum in Staten Island. And I just said, nope. <laughs> no, I am not. Could you explain for the listeners why you chose not to investigate there? Yeah, because Willowbrook was an asylum for mentally ill and developmentally disabled children where they were abused. And there was this like very scandalous expose in the 1980s of all people, Geraldo Rivera broke the story. It was horrific. It was just terrifying and awful. And nowadays, the location of Willowbrook is the College of Staten Island campus. And I had a lot of people say, you know, I went to that campus and it felt very terrifying and you could feel it as a haunting presence. So why don't you do a tour there? And I was like, I felt that that was far too disrespectful and exploitative and I personally wouldn't be able to stomach it. You know, I was like, that's just, it's taboo for me. There's just certain things that we we won't do. We won't do 9-11 stuff. Um, I won't do asylums. So yeah, that, that's just where I draw as the says the boundaries. We'll talk about these things. Like we talk about places where abuse has happened. That's different than leading monet- a Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we, we're not we're not afraid to talk about things that need to be talked about, that need to be unpacked, but you have to do it with a level of respect and you have to do it without voyeurism in a certain way. I don't want to be fetishizing the experience of these people's suffering for people who want to be sort of titillated in our modern age. Like, I don't know, that just, that's icky to me. Yeah. 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 For that. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of all the paranormal shows are doing. Mm-hmm. That, that's those are the places that they're going to. And it is very it is very masculine to the way they appro- I mean, obviously, it's all do bros. But when they go into locations like that, the first thing that they do a lot of the time, almost all the time, let me say there are some exceptions like Jack and Katrina. I do like portals to help. <laughs> who is who Katrina, who is um, quoted in our introduction. Yes, she has the, a wonderful she- quote in there. She's the best. So I, yeah. And she's a refreshing presence in that whole dynamic. But yes, anyway, no. So they going in. Yeah. So they go in and they are pushy. Yeah. With the spirits, like show me something, you know, and I talk about this all the time, but I feel like what if we were more respectful? Just an idea, you know, like what if we actually (laughs) had a conversation with these entities? If you actually believe in them, is that how you talk to somebody when you first meet them? Is that how you would like to be spoken to? Exactly. It's so I, I agree with you. Yeah. So some of those spaces are and yeah, and you get re- and you get better results if you're respectful. It's like I talk about this in my chapter about Eliza Jamel in the Morris Jamel Mansion. She's a Victorian lady who is very specific about how she ran her house. And so when you have a paranormal investigation in her bedroom and it is mixed company and it is strangers, it is men she does not know in her bedroom. I I said to the investigator, I said she's not going to talk to you because this is not appropriate. And the flashlight that was sort of unscrewed that was being used as sort of the the medium, as it were, blinked on 
as I was making this comment. And so the yeah. investigator was like point taken to his credit was like point taken. And he led all of the male presenting folks out of the room. And that I was, mean, that was that. I, we had a lovely I, conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I wonder if we could just be more compassionate in our approach. Here's my question always is if you actually believe that these are entities that are intelligent in many cases, then use your social and emotional talent intelligence. You know, how would you just say hi? You don't have to be such a douche nozzle. (laughs) Yeah. Andrea has a great thing that you say, Andrea, about respect, about how people would want to be spoken up. Do you want to do you want to say that? You know what I'm leading into. You've said it before on other things. Oh, my God. I'm drawing a blank. Lead, lead me a little more. Okay, sorry. I mean, because I just didn't want to say what you say, which I love. But you you use a very simple metric. If I'm talking about this person's grandmother. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Yes. So when I'm talking about a ghost on my tour, I kind of ask those who would be like the, the ghost bros and yell at them and taunt them and so forth. How would you feel if this ghost that we're talking about was your grandmother? That's yeah. awesome. How would you want her to be to be treated? Or how would you feel if it was your mother? Or your sister, or your daughter, or your infant child, you know, like, yeah, gosh. So, yeah, sometimes certain sections of the population need to be coaxed into empathy. They don't actually naturally have it. So you have to like trigger it for them. And I think a large reason why this is an issue is because many people don't understand that a ghost was once a person. There is this idea that a ghost story isn't real. So who who cares? And I have encountered many ghost tour guides and operators who falsify stories because ghost stories aren't real. So who cares? Say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Despite the fact that there's an element of urban legend and folklore to every ghost story, there's also a, a grain of truth. And several of them do have historic personages and real individuals at their center. So it's not like these aren't real people anyway who cares and I think that was part of the project with this book was like by grounding these stories in the lived realities of human women who once existed you're like oh this isn't just a fun loving dead sex worker this is like maybe a girl who was alive at one point if not a specific one then a representation or amalgam of you know people who were alive at a certain point so it's like by depersonalizing them you can kind of do whatever you want with them once you make them personal and concrete and real people, then that's when the respect starts to flow, hopefully, ideally. (laughs) Ideally, yeah. Not to say that we romanticize people who shouldn't be romanticized. Like, I really think that that's an important delineation because there are some evil women that we talk about in this book that Andrea writes about brilliantly. I let her have all the bad girls, i.e. I was I knew she would do a great job with the nuance of all of that because I just was I was drawn to like the fluffy, benevolent ones. (laughs) So I'm going to try to push myself and maybe do some evil ones in in a follow up. But um. But Andrea writes so well about the bad ones. And so we don't try to redeem people who literally should not be redeemed like Mary Surratt absolutely co-conspired to kill Abraham Lincoln. There's no redeeming her. What's interesting is that people started romanticizing her Mm -hmm. ghost stories. These are the things we're trying to sort of say, hey, this is complicated. We're not trying to rehabilitate people who should not be rehabilitated. Women can be evil just as much as anybody else. So part of equality. Yeah. Yeah, it's not rah-rah revisionism. It's like, let's look through these things with a an impartial lens. And if somebody was less than perfect, let's explore that. And I think I wrote somewhere in my introduction, possibly to one of the sections that like these women are neither to be put up on a pedestal nor condemned, but embraced as the whole person. Uh, I think that's 
super important. And I have so many questions to ask you, but I have to kind of stay a little on track or I'm going to keep you forever. I want to go back to you saying that you had like sort of a quote unquote list of things that you stay away from. Something that's been coming up a lot for me recently is exorcisms. I just because it's been coming up and this is what I do, like I'm like, let's just ask every guest from here on out about exorcisms. What do you feel about them? And have you come across that in in your work and, and research? There's discussion of several different cleansings and sort of exorcisms that we discuss through the book. Kind of the most fun one is Andrea's discussion of Joan Rivers. Yeah. So we 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 touch on them, but we don't go through an actual discussion, a breakdown of a specific specific one because a lot of times I don't necessarily consider an exorcism story to be a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it, some it's an inhuman entity versus That's a different thing. It's some mm-hmm. it's someone who's channeling essentially like if you I mean whether or not you do you don't believe in demons. An exorcism is like someone who is channeling some kind of energy or or manifesting something that is purely from their own possible trauma. And I don't presume to know about exactly what anyone's exorcism situation is. But that is the living person that is channeling something. It's almost like they're a medium in that moment. They're not a ghost story, nor is the energy that's there necessarily a ghost, unless it's tied specifically to a very, very haunted building. But you don't actually have those parallels. Now, where this would be interesting is if we found a case where there was an exorcism that was conducted and it was also a haunted house that had this separate ghost story. And then it's like, wait a minute, did the ghost possess the person? Mm-hmm. That 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 sort of cross, that sort of Venn diagram where that's at the center, I have not personally encountered. Mm-hmm. But if that's there, then we would write about it. But it's sort of like, guess what? Exorcisms outside of our purview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of is. So on that, how do you... I think I know the answer, but I just want to hear here. How do you feel about cleansing in general and and sort of like sending spirits into the light with a group or something like that? It's so it's so personal. You know, the, the, the paranormal is so personal and I don't really feel like we necessarily all of it has to do with consent and permission. OK, so like everything living in the dead, consent and permission and the dead have to also respect our boundaries, too. So when I talk with people about being in a haunted space. And if they're feeling beset by whatever energy is there, I will remind them that they actually have living privilege. You are the living in this moment. You are here. This is your space, provided you are there. How, whatever dynamic is being set up there, like the the spirit or the energy does not have access to you unless you want to give that access to them. Also, you know, sending something over or whatever, that's going to be very personal on the people who are in the area, the family of who might be involved. Like, I don't know, all of that gets very, very, very personal. I would never charge into a place and just try to like set the place to rest. It's just not how I It's not how I roll because it's like I would want every single contextual factor to be in play. Then if if a spirit is just hanging out and it wants to hang out, maybe it has a sense of its own purpose there. I just that's not a situation I I necessarily want to find myself in. Now, if someone is is actually being hurt or harmed by something, then I will talk about various sort of cleansing procedures that people can do. But I don't prescribe. I really take it very non-denominational. I take it very outside of the realm of actual, here's the specific ritual, because I basically just want to make it personal to the person. Because if it's not personal to the person, it's not whatever magic that is, whatever spirit that is, it's not going to take. It's got to be personal. Mm -hmm. Also, too, be careful of appropriation, too, because like we're seeing now that certain species of sage 
are going extinct Mm -hmm. because a bunch of white people are taking a whole lot of Native American principles and literally people are, you know, the people for whom those practices are sacred are, are losing access to the tools of their sacred art. So just be careful about appropriation. Now, if it is someone who that is a part of their tradition or whatever, then that is theirs. And that in that case, that's not appropriate as. But I think just let's be careful about like, you know, the the crystal magic stuff can get a little bit decentralized to a point where none, none of it kind of matters if you're not actually sourcing. So I, I'm really interested in if you do have tools of whatever cleansing trade you're doing, source them responsibly and, and stay away from something that's literally endangered now because of mass production. Yeah. And white ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. White ladies everywhere. With their Palo Santo and sage, yes. What about just before we move on from this topic of, of cleansing and, and things that you sort of maybe stay away from, what about inhuman entities? You know, does that ever come up in conversation with the people that are on your tours or do you ever come across that just in your world of woo? Yes, because people are not sure what energy they're encountering. And so I will sort of talk them through whatever they're experiencing and then just remind them about boundaries. And I will, if the situation calls for it, and I've done, you know, I do panels and lectures and everything. And so I have taught psychic shielding to a panel audience just as a a general rule of thumb for things like that. And I think that that covers a wide range of possible human and possibly whatever the heck that might be. So I, I am very sort of like broad brush about that to just kind of cover all the bases. But like Andrew and I both are really interested in the human stories about this. So the stuff that's like cryptids and demons and all of that. That is really honestly outside of our purview because we lose the human angle with this. Now, not to say that it's not interesting about people searching for these things, but our niche market has always been in ghosts. I feel like there's plenty of people that are writing really interesting things about demons and cryptids and all these other things and like UFOs and whatever that I feel like us trying to just do the work of this folkloric exploration of how we as humans now in this modern era talk about ghosts from X amount of times in the past to the present. That that in and of itself is so much, there's so much to do yet that I honestly don't feel like we even need to go outside of our realm of just human interest stories, which really at the end of the day, that's what this is with yeah. trying to tie the ghost back to the woman she was. Right, right. That makes sense. And it's, I like the way that you are open to all of the other realms and you don't dismiss them because a lot of times these groups can be very factioned in a severely judgmental way. And so it's nice to hear that you're like, yeah, that's cool. It's just really not my jam. Andrea, you mentioned in the chapter Dark Academia, the folklore motif, ghosts return to protect the living. Mm -hmm. Do you, and Liana, you can answer as well. Why do you think ghosts return? Do you believe that? Hmm, Possibly. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely, it's a comforting thought. It's a really nice thought. I mean, I can't possibly explain the minutia of it. Like what would motivate a spirit to do that? I mean, I don't even know if I personally believe in intelligent hauntings in that sense. I kind of really only believe in residual hauntings personally. I've been doing ghost tours for 10 years and I have not been convinced of intelligent hauntings sufficiently at this moment in my life. So I really don't know that that's anything more than a folkloric motif. 
that being said, I am just a human being and I don't have all the answers and I don't know. I love the idea of it. I think it's really beautiful. I think it also probably has a lot to do with your own theology as well. Do you believe in angels? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that your grandmother is literally looking down on you from heaven and protecting you? Literally. Do you believe that a spirit in a dorm room in college is literally protecting others? saving them from their same fate. It's really, it's up to you. It's, it's up to you. I don't know. I would, on the one hand, like to think that there's an entity out there with that much compassion and love. But on the other hand, do I want this being stuck in some sort of in-between limbo world forever and not being released? And again, that becomes a theological question. I don't know. Yeah, that's a really open-ended one. It's a nice motif, though, and it's a beautiful story. Well, and I think that's what Andrea is talking about in that chapter, is that there is a theme of ghosts protecting young women in college that happens within the Dark Academia chapter. That That is a recurring theme, that there is sort of a protector ghost for young women who are outside of their homes for the first time in a meaningful capacity and starting a new life. And so like there's one particular story that she talks about where someone was held back from falling down a stair by something that they didn't they they didn't understand what held them back. And that was supposedly a site where someone had died. I think in some ways the culture of the ghost story creates the circumstances where there's energy there that can be looked at as protective. And so exactly how that happens and exactly how that manifests, we don't presume to say, but we certainly are looking at the themes and the themes become a reality. Mm -hmm. And so now I personally have a lot more wider range of belief and specific experiences where I do believe in intelligent hauntings. And I have experienced just about every type of sensory haunting you could possibly experience in addition to moments of actual mediumship, where I have actually heard some things that have been verified as things I could not have known to say, which is not something I talk about in the book because that's super personal. But since we're getting a little personal here, I will share that. But that's not something I don't, I don't like. I don't hang a shingle out. I don't have like a neon sign. I don't, you know, I, I am not. <laughs> Call me now. I, no, I am really not. No, because I, I won't. I won't do it. When it happens, it happens for very close friends. And if it happens, it's very, it's like I don't keep that door open often. I channel my sense of the spirit world. I channel it directly into my books, into my fiction and into my nonfiction. And that is how I, I feel called to serve the spirit world. So the spirit world is very real for me. And I think that's very clear and how I talk about it in the book for the, those who are reading into my introduction section. <laughs> so when I thank the spirit world and the acknowledgments of the book. So I think it's pretty clear that I that I have an active conversation happening with the spirit world. Does that mean I know exactly how it works? No way. Do I want to know exactly how it works? No. The divine mystery is a thing. We should let it, we should let some of that stuff be the divine mystery that it is. Like let some things be sacred and un, unknown till the end. Yes. Yes. You do in existential questions. You do say at the end here, the quote from letters to a young poet, that whole quote. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now, perhaps then someday in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. I, you know, highlighted the shit out of that because I, I love it. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. So 
profound. Raina Maria Rilke, Letters to Young Poet, is literally like, it's my sacred text. If I had a personal Bible, it's Rilke's Letters to Young Poet. I just think that Rilke speaks so beautifully about life and spirit and care and humanity and is so vulnerable in doing so in those letters. And so it's really, it's it's something I keep going back to again and again and again. And I was really glad. I was like, well, I have to put my favorite quote, like literally sort of my present d'etre into my introduction section because... That's just something I just feel is really applicable across all kinds of different aspects of life and afterlife. Yeah. It, I mean, it inspired me. We have our crew sheets for every day for the cast and crew. And I'm going to have this quote on the top of our crew sheets. So because I do want everybody to remember that we're we're just following our curiosity. We are just being in a surrendered state and a curious state and trying to have as much fun as we can while we do it and connecting with each other and being good to ourselves and each other while we do it. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for helping to create that culture because I do feel like there is a lot of love and generosity and kindness that can be found in the paranormal world. It's just that you have to find the like-minded people to do it. Totally. And thank you too. I mean, this is like mutual admiration club. (laughs) Liana, I think, you know, you said you're five or six years old when you had that that unique experience. I'm wondering if that really kind of triggered you in a potentially, it sounds like, good way. I don't know. I mean, I know those gifts, quote unquote, can be complicated. They can be like a blessing and a curse, but it almost feels like that was a door that was opened and now you have access to that. Has that caused you like on the blessing versus curse line there? Has that caused you issues in the past where you're like, Mm. good God, get out of my brain or get out of my energetic space? Yeah. Yes. Actually, at darker points in my life, things got super chaotic. So that's why I talk about managing your energies at a certain point, like when I was battling some pretty severe depression, because that's something that runs in my family. I was not sure what energies were mine or what was being drawn or flocking to my energy where I was. I don't know. It was all it was a chaotic soup. Yeah, that was definitely in the curse part of that aspect. But I just had to get my own brain right. I had to get my own body chemistry right and my own chemical balance correct. After that, then I could engage again with the paranormal in a safe way because I knew where my energy stopped and where something else begins Mm -hmm. because I had quieted my own mind and my own stuff enough. So it's like you really have to work on yourself before you can really safely go into these spaces, I think personally, from my own personal experience, because you have to kind of stay grounded that way, because otherwise you don't know what is yours and what is, you know, the human mind is super powerful. And Andrea really writes beautifully about that in her chapter about the Bell Witch. Mm hmm. Andrea, yeah. do you want to come in on that a little? Um, sure. I mean, that's another one where like the jury is still out on what happens. But I do think that the Nandor Fodor theory is very plausible, actually kind of probable. I actually just found this really amazing quote. You guys read The Haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale. I will, though. <laughs> yeah. Should <No>. I? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I read now again. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's 26 letters. It's amazing what they can do when you put them together in different combinations. <laughs> so Kate Summerscale wrote about Alma Fielding, who was the real-life test subject in one of Fodor's very famous psychic investigations. He wrote a book called On the Trail of the Poltergeist about it. And she was just discussing this concept that the traumatized teenage girl or grown woman 
traumatized person, you know, can manifest these things. And there's a lot about the connection between trauma and rage and telekinesis, Carrie, for example. So Kate Summersfield writes in The Haunting of Fielding, she's exploring this theory of the connection between trauma and telekinesis, or RSPK. She writes, some events are so dark that to find them is an act of imagination as much as memory. They lie between history and fiction. Perhaps there are still feelings for which only a ghost will do. And I do think that sometimes we need to sublimate feelings that are inexpressible into a paranormal experience. And I, I, I think it's eminently plausible, to be honest. And as I was reading the account that was written by the youngest son of the Bell family, reportedly first-person account that he wrote, the putatively real document, he talks over and over and over again about the idea of silence and speaking and keeping secrets and revealing and expressing and the act of speaking. And I was like, this is really very obvious stuff. Like, it's obviously a secret that needed to get out. And I kept jotting down in my margins who I thought did it. I thought it was like one of the father's friends and the father knew and didn't say anything. And also the bell, which would like clamp his mouth shut and stuff like that. It's like, it was really deeply symbolic. So yeah, I thought, I thought that was pretty, pretty complex and very interesting, fascinating stuff. Yeah. So I, I think that that kind of just speaks to the level of like where we are characters in the haunted story and the scenarios. Again, where our stories end and these other things begin, it's like, it's really hard to say. And so in terms of the doorways that open up, it's like, I've talked to a bunch of people who have various levels of sensitivity. And I honestly think all human beings have a level of sensitivity because like we're aware, you know, we all have instincts. We all have situations where the hair's going up in the back of our neck. We've all had situations where we feel unsafe because of something that we can't even say, like we can't even actually you know, pinpoint exactly why or whatever. And I think people who are societized as women are very much always taught these things just for our own various protections. But I think that there's also something to be said where we should lean into the fact that we do have extrasensory perception in a way. We can always tell when someone who's come into a room and something has happened beyond just their facial cues or their body language. Like We can tell when energies change. We really can. It's just that that falls into this kind of open-ended territory. I feel like when I'm talking with people about how they may or may not open up to the spirit world, I just make sure that they're taking care of themselves first. It's like put your oxygen mask on first Mm -hmm. before helping others. The same goes for if you're dealing with any kind of energies, because if you're dwelling with a very dark place, with a very dark energy, it inevitably will kind of affect you. So it's like when I'm dealing with subject matter for a book, I just turned into my agent a book where my main character has a really, really, really difficult past. And that put me into a real deep space difficult place. And some of that was modeled off of little things that I had some understanding of. I'm very lucky that I have had a relatively charmed life comparatively to a lot of the people that I write about. (laughs) So I feel very lucky in that regard. But that I I had to remind myself, like, I'm not a method writer. I don't need to put myself exactly into this place in the same way that you don't necessarily have to reenact or recreate scenarios of trauma. Just respect them and respect that these people went through some things and have empathy, but you don't necessarily need to go back into that place. That's not necessarily the way to respect them. How to respect them is to teach society about what they went through so that it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have an improv background and there's sort of two paths of improv. You can do the like, well, improv is very topical, but when you get into some of like the deeper exercises and stuff that aren't just so fun and games, you can either do the one route, which is essentially re-traumatizing yourself when you deeply empathize with someone who had a fucked up life. (laughs) Or you can, like you said, create a boundary and just be authentic to that person's story within an imaginary environment. And that, I think, is the healthier form of acting. I know many actors disagree with me, but I I do think it is the healthier form of acting and being in paranormal spaces. So I agree. I, I, I'll ask it. I'm, I'm a theater major too. So like, I feel that that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrea, what are you saying? No, I think the term imaginary environment is really lovely because that is sort of how I approach ghosts. I don't really approach them literally, like actually going into haunted spaces and doing investigations. I approach them as a social history or folklore and as an imaginary environment that speaks to our subconscious as human beings. And so for me, it's not necessarily that I'm keeping them at a distance or a critical remove. It's just I'm drawing my own boundary in that sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't sleep in haunted hotels overnight, for example. (laughs) I really don't. <laughs> not my bag. <laughs> no. I, hell no. You crazy? I'm not doing that. I'm not re-traumatizing myself for your entertainment. I, I draw a healthy boundary and I keep them in that. I want to write that down. The imaginary environment. Yeah, you really are Mulder and Spelly. Yeah. You, you are. It's so yep. fun to listen to the different approaches that you have and how you work so well together. You have such different perspectives on this world. We do. And it's been something that like we didn't set out to sort of that just fell out organically as to who we are. I started working for Andrea as a tour guide for Burr's the Dead. That's how this all started. I was approached by an editor who took one of my ghost tours and was like, hey, you should write a nonfiction book about ghosts. And I'm like, "Okay, well, the manner in which I talk about ghosts comes from Andrea and I's shared perspective. I was her first employee. It was a shared perspective about how to approach this stuff, which came from a culture of respect and a culture of history first, woo later, because the history is what is unshakable. At least it's always changing. Yes. But it's like you can touch the history. You can touch the buildings that still stand, all that kind of stuff. That's our tactile world. And then everything else is up to the person. And because we both respect that that haunting is deeply personal, that was never a conflict in our kind of divergent styles. And we also knew that two different voices about something where there is no definitive answer is only going to increase, the. we hope, the readership's understanding of the broad conversation that we can all be having. This book is a series of prompts for you all to be thinking about the ghost stories in your world and how you encounter sometimes very complicated histories too. Absolutely. Yeah. That's history first, woo later. I love that. You know, the sort of psychic components and protecting your space and having boundaries when you go on these tours and Andrea, you even not going into haunted spaces and staying overnight, all of that. Like, have you noticed that there are haunted people that either come to your tour or that you almost are like, whoa, this is not a haunted house. This is not a haunted location. This is a haunted human. And how do each of you unpack that? Because I imagine it's different. I just try to speak a, a lot with love. And I don't want to go on at length because I know that Andrea's got to go, but I can I can stay on if we want to come back to some of that. I try to just approach wherever they're at with love and openness. And I just, in that case, I really just operate from instinct because I usually don't have a whole lot of time with people. And if if I'm at a convention and I've given a talk and they talk to me afterwards, that's a lot more open-ended. When I'm on the streets of New York and I'm trying to deal with the people who have 
come to the tour, that's a much more regimented time frame. And so sometimes I only have a five minutes between stops while I'm talking to people between stops. And I actually mention in it, in my introduction how I had a, one young man who just really needed to tell me that his grandmother was still in his living room and just needed somebody to believe him and needed to talk to somebody about it and just have it be a matter of fact thing. And his father also wanted him to say that and for them to sort of be reassured that that's okay, but you also might want to be careful about. Well, at first I asked him, like, how do you feel about it? Because if he was scared, then I would have created a different response, but he was not scared. It was reassuring to him. So, you know, checking in with the person first, how do you feel about your situation? Because it's the person that we're dealing with. Everything else is the secondary thing. You know, it's the history first. (laughs) So that person's context. So it's really, it's very, very personal. So what the person's bringing to me and how they're bringing it. Then I will either say to embrace it and just roll with it, or I will give them a suggestion for how to shield and block. And what about you, Andrea? Have you had (laughs) to deal with that? Yeah, I don't have enough time really on a tour to get to know someone very, very well. But as you were asking the question, what do you think about haunted people? I had to go into my little bookcase. (laughs) Haunted people. You know, I do think I was speaking with a friend who does do paranormal investigations. And he said in every haunting I've ever encountered, there's the location and there's the person in the location. And this like melding of the two creates the third scenario where, you know, you can have a person in a haunted location and nothing will happen. And you can have a haunted person in a safe location and nothing will happen. But if you get a haunted person in a haunted place, then it's going to be fireworks. So yeah, it depends a whole lot on the individual. And what's funny, I was speaking with another tour operator last week, and she's very similar to Liana in the sense that she also thinks of herself as a paranormal chaplain on tours. And she's had like grown men break down and cry, just talking about grief and like the process of grief. And I've had people cry on my tours as well. And I feel that definitely there's a catharsis to it. There's a processing of emotions and feelings and grief and They can be very profound experiences. So even just on a human level, I think we're all haunted in some way to some degree. It's a spectrum, you know? Yeah, I do think we're all haunted. Well, I really do. And it's exactly to bring it full circle to what you said in the beginning. If you talk to anyone at some point, they have a paranormal story in their back pocket. Yeah, true. I think there's just like you said, the divine mystery. We just, there's no way to figure this shit out. <laughs> there's just not. Really there's no answer. <laughs> you can try, but as you know, it's just never ending questions. And that's kind of where I like to live, actually. And that's mm-hmm. not where you're just always asking questions and kind of poking things to see what happens. Mm-hmm. I love this quote by, I love Katrina. Stop it. She's wonderful. She is the nicest lady. I met her years back when she was doing a media tour for one of her shows, and we just really hit it off. She was very interested in the fact that I was a a fiction writer, and I had had the hopes for a book like this, but that wasn't in the cards at that point. But we had followed each other on Twitter after we'd had this really great conversation around her tour because I was helping staff the actual media tour that she was on. And so I just sort of shot my shot with that one. And I was like, hey, so it's been a few years since we were in the studio together, but we're doing this book and you are like the lady on the ghost shows. Can you please talk about being a lady on the ghost shows? Because it just, 
It felt like, you know, it just felt like not including her was like a, just such a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully, I, I hadn't heard back because her schedule, of course, was insane. And again, it's not like this was, I'm sure, way down on the to-do list, but she was so gracious and she she did get back to me and say, I hope this isn't too late, but I would actually really love to say a few things. And we were like, great, we would love to. But we were like in the page pass level. Like we oh, were, we, so inserting it in was like, it's just me and the copy editors and me being like, bless you. Thank you. Sorry about this, but it's great. And everyone yeah. was like, no, this is really great content. So yeah. So she, she really did provide, she was very generous in what she said. So yes. And, and whatever you want to share about that, I'm, I'm always glad. Yeah, she's just wonderful. And I've actually not met her personally, but I have like a very close friend who knows her and then somebody else that I work with. And just everything that you hear about her is lovely. And and I would love to work with her one day. Have you ever worked with Michelle Belanger? Yes, actually. We have been on panels together at Dragon Con and have a lot of the same thoughts about energy and about boundaries. Because I mean... Michelle wrote the book about a lot of energies. So like literally, so there's a lot of stuff in the Vampire Codex, actually, that was really, really helpful for me. And just learning about energy work in general that I found applicable to a lot of different dynamics and whether or not that's sort of a community that you find yourself drawn to. It's like, I'm goth. So literally, this has also been, I don't know, the sort of vampire culture is also entwined with goth culture. It's like you see Dracula behind me. All of that stuff is there's just there's so much rich stuff to be said, but also a lot of ways in which you have to take care of your energy. And so that's really something that's been interesting. I feel like Michelle's work has just really been important across all kinds of different spheres. You know, just such an important force in the community for sure. And also really, really kind, really, really fun to be on panels with. So yes, also, I feel like I want to go and send little notes to all of the folks who talked about it. Like, you were spoken of fondly today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Michelle is wonderful. I I just kind of had a feeling that if you knew Katrina, you might have, because I know they have a good connection. And yeah, Yep. Michelle has been, we've been working really closely on this linear show that we're working on. And just when you talk about like people being haunted and people who walk into spaces and then like weird shit happens, Michelle oh. is definitely one of them. Oh, oh, <laughs> I feel like Michelle is like a gravity well of, of haunted things happening. Yes. And it's, so like if anyone is at the center of that, Michelle is definitely at the center of that. <laughs> For sure. Like, make sure the cameras are rolling because weird shit happens. But I also trust Michelle, though, too. Like, that's the other thing, too. It's not that that's a scenario where someone is willing something to happen or forcing something to happen. There is that kindness and that respect at the center of who Michelle is that I feel like that's why if things are happening, I would go with it and trust it and roll with it more than somebody who's being, like we said, the problematic aspect of people coming into a space and being antagonistic. That's what Andrea and I can't stomach either. Yeah. So I want to, I know you don't have a ton of time, so I just want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of some questions here that I have. Yeah. Do people call you to investigate their spaces or do people who come to your tours, do they ever bother you about that? Do you ever get the weird random email where someone's like, I heard of you. Can you help me? No, because we don't put ourselves out as paranormal investigators. We are not. We, we are we not. Are, we are not. <laughs> we are ghost tour guides that will happily lead you around haunted places in New York City. I have been a ghost tour guide in many other cities in this 
lovely country. So in that regard, that is where I feel comfortable. I don't have equipment. I don't have a background in that. There are plenty of people that do. So this then goes back into the, hey, not our purview. There's Mm -hmm. plenty of folks out there. And again, obviously there's an overlap of people who are ghost tour guides and also investigators. We do not happen to have that overlap. We're honestly, like our overlap is we talk about real ghosts and then we also write fiction. So our other thing that we do outside of being ghost tour guides and folklorists is we're also fiction writers too. So I feel like that's plenty. That's plenty. We don't need an an additional vocation. (laughs) Understood. Understood. Oh, you can always use a couple more jobs. I mean, if you were interested in doing that, Andrea, I would fully support you. But somehow I don't think that that's really where you want to go. Yeah. um, No, we're pretty clear on our website. Like there's no investigative aspect to what we do. So sometimes people on our website will leave things in the comments. Like we'll write a historical blog post about Hellgate Bridge and they'll leave a comment asking for a specific genealogical research questions. Like people ask me for all kinds of things all the time. Ask me for genealogical research. They will ask me for paranormal chaplaincy. They will ask for all kinds of things, not an investigation yet, but pretty much everything else under the sun, whether it's through email, comments on my website, or my favorite, the 4 a.m. phone call. People call me at all, all, all hours of the day and night. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, that's where you as the tour operator, that being your business, you deal with that more than I do because my <laughs> number is not public. Yeah. So <laughs> they'll ask you for all kinds of things. <laughs> Go ahead. I know that you just said you're not investigators, but being interested in these stories and this weird land, are there places or is there a place each of you are like, it's on my bucket list. I would like to go there and just, you know, investigate the history of the place, not sleep over. But kind of just see what it's like and see what it feels like. We absolutely want to go to the historic sites. So that so don't mistake our not being investigators for not being curious about the sites themselves. Got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am big on putting my feet on that soil. I am big about that. So I was not about to write what is my longest chapter, which is the Sarah Winchester chapter. I was not about to write about the mystery house without going to the mystery house and securing time with their house historian and literally spending as much time as 48 hours would allow in that house. Because so much about that place is about place memory. (laughs) If I didn't put myself there, I I would not A, have been able to write the chapter. I would have felt like I wasn't doing the chapter, the house or Sarah Winchester justice. So if at all possible, and we actually going forward, Andrea and I have talked about wanting to go see more sites and do actual more walking the areas and grounds. And we've just been, both of us been taking lots more pictures of everywhere that we've been going because realizing a bunch of my pictures ended up in this book because they requested them. And I thought, oh, okay. So now we're just really realizing we want to be as tactile as possible that with within the boundaries that we have discussed already. Yeah, it's funny. During the writing of this book, because it was still pandemic times and because we didn't have reliable schooling, I wasn't able to plan anything. I wasn't able to go anywhere. So I did a lot of stuff remotely. I didn't actually go to West Virginia. I had somebody from West Virginia read my chapter for me to go over it and make sure that it was okay because I wasn't able to go there. I have gone on paranormal investigations and it's a cliche and it's really funny, but I am that person that drains three packs of fresh battery. (laughs) So unsurprisingly. Anyways, I wouldn't mind going to West Virginia. I would need like extensive therapy first though because I'm afraid of driving. 
especially on foggy mountain roads. So I need to do a ton of therapy before I can do that. See, I love driving and I am from rural Ohio in the middle of nowhere. So when you need to go do a thing, I will drive you. If you this will is- drive me and you don't mind me, I honestly, if you look at my car, I do have a car in New York City, which is insane. I can only drive it to Costco and back. And if you look in my car on that passenger side, deeply embedded into the leather of the handle, the door handle, are half moons of my fingernails from where I clutch the door in terror whenever we get on the highway. And it's just a pattern of fingernails. So I will try not to wreck your interior if you take me anywhere. I will absolutely be the designated driver. Auburn is hilarious. Mulder is the designated driver here in this Mulder and Scully relationship. So I will say where I wanted to go for a long time is those mounds. I think there's like some mounds in St. Louis and Louisiana, Poverty Point, it's called. There are these ancient mounds. There used to be ancient cities there. You know what I'm talking about? Are mm-hmm. you, is it the mm-hmm. serpent mounds? It's not those. That's in Ohio. That's, That's Native American burial yeah. grounds. Uh, Poverty Point is in Louisiana. It's a World Heritage Site. And it's this enormous, it's a ruin of what was once like an, an enormous city, like a metropolis, like bigger than New York, bigger than London. Like it's this it's huge. Anyway, so it's this incredible place. It's got a weird name. I don't know why it's called Poverty Point, but it's this, yeah, it's like a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Anyway, I, I would love to go there. It's not paranormal, but it's a place that I've always wanted to go to. And then just in terms of the paranormal, this just leapt to mind, possibly because of the conversation we had yesterday on the other podcast. But I would love to go down in a little submarine and check out the Titanic wreck site. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That whole story is fascinating to me because, well, we we could go on a whole side. Fascinating to everyone, right? It's it's just (laughs) like, what the fuck? Well, and then talk about like capitalist lens. Oh, yeah. It shouldn't have left and the fuckers and the fucker, fucker, fucker. Yeah. So many. So So many many fuckers. fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you have a place that's sort of on your vision board, Leon? The Winchester house was the bucket list item of all bucket list items. And I did it. And so that's great. But now also the Molly Brown house was another bucket list item. And I did that when I was out on book tour. So that's great. So I'll be writing about Molly Brown. Should we have the good fortune to continue this as a series? But I feel like, honestly, I'm kind of leaving myself open. There's some stuff in D.C., that I need to get to, that I want to get to because of people and histories that I'm writing about. So DC is like the must do next because there's stuff at Rock Creek Cemetery I need to photograph and just be in. And there's just some places where folks lived and their energies might still be around and stuff that I've got to check out. DC is definitely next on the list. And I think, Andrea, you know, get in the car. <laughs> Give her like some Xanax or something. <laughs> right, right, right. Get you a little tipsy or something and then just be like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. if I'm not driving, let's do it. My <laughs> God. So I, I, to- I love driving. Do you? I do. I love driving. I love it, which is hilarious because Andrea is going to write a chapter about wayside ghosts and like scary turn ghosts and everything, which is hilarious because like she's using her terror of driving to write that That's chapter. The- and I'm just like, I, yeah. I mean, it's a good place to write from. It's going to be what? Going to be cathartic. Yes. <laughs> so I want to talk about capitalism. <laughs> Sadly, every day we talk about it. So there's this quote by Alicia Puglionesi from the Baltimore City Paper. And I think this is, who's one? who is this? Industrial Monsters. Who wrote this one? We both did. It's we about did. the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Yes, yes, yes. That's such a powerful story. Dang. 
So the quote is, haunting originates in the structural violence of capitalism. That's a that's a heavy quote. Haunting Isn't that great? originates in the structural violence of capitalism. Holy farts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just interviewed a, a witch high priestess recently, and she said this thing that re- really stuck with me, and I wanted to ask you about it. She said something that she asks her, she calls them her cousins because she doesn't like the whole like hierarchical thing. So everybody's her cousin instead of a student. And she says, what if the mundane is the illusion and the magic is the reality? And I love that. Her whole thing is about capitalism and this deep social conditioning has actually stripped us from a deeper connection with the supernatural and our more spiritual selves or however you want to say it. How do you feel about that? Do you think there's truth to that? Is that something that resonates with you? I think it's true. I think we were very conditioned away from mystery and magic very early in our lives. And it was a process for me to get back to it. Just societization will be like, no, 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 it has to be this rational thing. And I think it's a very Western culture thing. It is just like Andrea was saying earlier. So I absolutely think that rediscovering magic, and, and I mean magic, I don't necessarily even mean in the practicing magic sense. I just mean magic in general, like wonderment. Yes. Is getting back to that as an adult is one of the most healing things possible. And so trying to still hold on to that in a society that is trying to grind you down to be a good cog in the wheel, I feel like embracing that own inner magic is sort of like the existence is resistance thing. Yeah. And what do you think about that, Andrea? I love that quote so much. I've written it down, which is like the highest honor I can bestow on something. So (laughs) I'll tell um, her. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yes, please do. I also Googled Alicia Pulianese because I did love that quote about the structural violence of capitalism. And I found it while I was researching the exploitative nature of ghost tours. A few years ago, I'd like written this article that nobody would buy. No one would print about the exploitative aspect of ghost tours. And that's actually how I found the Taya Miles book, Tales from the Haunted South. And that's how I found the article that Pulianese wrote about the problematic aspect of Fells Point ghost tours in Baltimore. Turns out, look at this. She's, I'm on her website now. My second book is called In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire examines foresights of resource extraction that also yielded scientific and spiritual narratives core to U.S. settler colonialism. And her first book is Common Phantoms, an American History of Psychic Science. Why am I not like friends with this person? Yeah. <laughs> I will be looking her up. Also, I'm so sorry, Alicia, I butchered your name if you ever listen to this. I may have mispronounced it. I mispronounce everything, and it's a source of great joy to my husband is laugh at my Canadian pronouncing of, like, the word bean. I, you know, I have been out for a long time. Mario Kart. Oh, my God. He, he laughs because I say Mario Kart. Mario. Yeah. For Mario Brothers. <laughs> And pasta is another one. Anyway, yeah, I know. It's cute, right? Oh, I like to think it is. To answer your question, I will say, I'll answer your question with a story. Yeah, I will say that as a child, I wanted to be a writer. And at the age of six, I said as much to my cousin, who was two years older than me and quite a smart Alex. And he responded, if you want to be a writer, you'll be so poor, you'll have to write your stories on birch bark and work as a molly maid. And I then spent the rest of my life trying to find a real job. I was about 32 years old. I was working as a waitress in a pizza restaurant with a group of 22-year-old boys. I was the oldest there by a decade. And I was like, this isn't working. I can't, I can't do this. 
I can't find a real job. I want to be a writer. And so after like a whole lifetime of denying it and trying to fit in and let your magic get squashed down by capitalism. And then in the end, it sometimes for some of us, we just can't make it work, which is too weird. And it just doesn't fit. And we have to figure out alternate ways to make a living really, truly. I mean, yeah. And thusly why Andrea created her own company. Like, that's the thing. It's sort of like we sometimes you do actually have to create your own work because it's like I cannot do anything else. I I am a performer. I am a writer. and I've always been those things. And I've always been an artist. I have always kind of been a freelancer kind of personality. And so that's just really that's what that is. And thankfully, we've come around to this being a book that's it's done well. I think it's going to continue to do well. We're just on the preliminary ballot for the Stoker Awards uh, for Superior Achievement in Nonfiction. And we're really excited about that. So like, I feel in some ways, it's all come back around where if you just sort of stay true to yourself and try to kind of put what you feel uniquely suited to say and do out in the world. But but this was years of us trying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are other components, too, that I always bring up when I talk about this stuff, like privilege and or just it, it's a lot. But I, I think that if I encourage my listeners, if you feel like a weirdo and the nine to five bullshit monotony isn't working for you, then absolutely, you know, we believe in you. You mm-hmm. can do it. I'm in the same boat that you are. Like I'm crafting my own work and just making it happen little by little. And if it's not looking like success in the way that you think it should at like a certain timing based on the game of life or whatever, you're fine. It'll come when it's meant to come and just keep kind of plugging away at it. Yeah. I think it's it's really great to get back to that like original interests that you had when you were young. The, That's it. A, yeah. It's like a, it's, I think what capitalism tells us is that adding on is what makes us whole, consuming and adding on. And mm-hmm. really what it is, is just taking away. It's just taking all of that away and getting down to the core thing. And I I think that you all are obviously onto something because your writing is beautiful and it seems like I can feel that you're doing something you like doing. And that makes readers want to read your shit. Thank you. Thank you. That is a huge honor to hear because that's what we hope. Like that's, you know, it's yeah, it really is. It's like it's it's for both Andrew and I, like writing is our first greatest love. Yeah. And also, I mean, we're very lucky to be able to have crafted lives that work for us. Yeah. And one thing I would just add in terms of this constant tension of how capitalism interplays with our daily lives in terms of carving out a life that you love and a space that you love on the opposite sort of end of that is don't feel that you need to replace capitalist grind culture with art grind culture. You know what I mean? Like, it's a grind either way. And I think the do what you love philosophy is equally damaging. And it's a lie that has been fed to people to get them to work for free. And so if you are working today as a mail carrier or a pharmacist or, I don't know, retail clerk, and you like don't love your job, it's okay because you're not your job. You do it for money and you need money to live. And right now that's the system that we live under. And it's okay if you need to feed yourself and your family and you don't love what you do with all your heart. There's a book out there called Work Won't Love You Back. The job isn't supposed to fulfill every aspect of your life the way a spouse isn't supposed to play every role in your life. It's okay not to love your work. If you just do it for a paycheck, it's fine. That's the reality we live in now. And like, don't let that lie that you should do what you love because 
yeah, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Sure, maybe, but also do what you love and you'll never stop working a day in your life either. You know, yeah. monetize all your hobbies. So just like, I, I have mm. to be very careful inspiring people to follow their dream to do art because it can be dangerous sometimes. So I, I will say that being a business owner is incredibly hard. Yes, and if you have the choice to run your own business or work for someone else, it is always easier to work for someone else. I just have the kind of personality where I don't think I can. I'm like on some sort of spectrum, probably. I just can't do it. I'm not a good employee. So we each are doing our best, but don't let this do what you love lie, let you get exploited. It's very dangerous. That's a huge distinction. And I love that, you know, you said something like monetizing your art and your hobbies, like don't monetize them all, you know, just, no. just do them. And that's so important to remember. And we do get kind of sucked into like the Tony Robbins vortex mm -hmm. of if you mm -hmm. just believe this thing, well, there is a reality to it. And you kind of have to keep that balance in your mind. We're still engaging in that reality too, with the fact that this book, Planet History of Invisible Women, it is traditionally published. It is not independently published. We wanted to go with a traditional New York house because that level of being able to have a great editor, formatters, cover artist, and the distribution angle. We don't want to be publishers. We want to just write. We want someone else to do all the rest of the legwork. I mean, Andrea is doing all the legwork on keeping Burrs of the Dead up and running. Adding book publisher onto that is like a whole nother company angle that none of us wanted to take on. So for me, traditional publishing has been my path. So that's because I'm not good at any of the other things. Independent publishing is fantastic for for so many people. And that's exactly the right choice for so many people. It is not the right choice for me. I come from a theater background. I need a cast of people around helping me make a thing happen. Mm -hmm. And so that for me, my editor is my director. And I I want that feedback and that constant kind of relationship and the rest of the people creating, helping to create the structure of the book. I thank goodness that our formatters understood how to change footnotes to end notes. I mean, you know, it's just <laughs> stuff like, like, you know, and yeah, our man. formatters were working hard on this because there's so much you've seen there's a lot of notes there's a lot of bibliography the, the bibliography is big there's a lot of stuff in there and bless them for doing all that kind of stuff there's so much behind the scenes with a book and yeah. so that was really important for us to trust another entity and yes a corporation but I will say on Kensington's behalf they're the last independent publisher in New York they're the only small house left in all of the New York publishing industry and I kind of love that there's still just this independent bastion that's not beholden to the same corporate nonsense that like HarperCollins is doing right now where they're ignoring their striking workers. But anyway, we've had a great run with Kensington with this and they've been really supportive. So we're really glad about that. I was not told to say that by Kensington. That was just, <laughs> I just oh, that's, my own that's, yes, that's me volunteering a, a moment of embracing capitalism in this particular sense. Actually, we have come up with a chapter for volume two, if we're lucky enough to write a volume two that deals with labor and ghosts, where we have actually come across many instances of ghosts who continue to work in the afterlife. Life. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like chambermaids still dusting, the mother's still hanging out laundry, stuff like that, you know? And people are still rocking cradles and whatever. And so we were like, what the fuck? Why are you guys still doing laundry after death? That's the last thing I'm going to do when I die. So we have a chapter where we're going to address the complicated relationship that women have had with labor over the years, essentially, that we are expected to do it for free or for very little money. And <laughs> that, yeah, the idea of like the meshing of labor and, and the spectral, that's going to be a 
whole chapter there. Yeah, like the capitalism was so strong that they're still hooked on it after death. And that was also another kind of factor when we chose the title Invisible Women. It wasn't just socially and politically and historically invisible. It was also a reference to the invisible labor that that women yeah. perform on a daily basis. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I would love to go on a rabbit hole about witches because I know that like that's a whole section that I'm very curious about. But I know we don't have a lot of time, so I wanted to just kind of wrap up here with a couple questions. How do you on, on witchcraft? Let's just. I, I'm curious about your opinion on this topic. So witchcraft is actually on the rise. There have been a, a number of articles within the last five years or so that have by fairly big houses that are like, yeah, this is happening. Here's what we think and why. Why do you think that it's on the rise? And what do you feel about witchcraft having written so much about it in this book, I guess? Be- because, because in terms of like, just because I did the two Salem chapters, it's very important to note that the victim's of the Salem witch trials were not practicing witches. Mm-hmm. That was just a power grab by a, a violent mob who really, truly got caught up in paranoia and what paranoia will do. And people who were greedy were taking advantage of other people's paranoia. And so that's how that happened. So in that case, it's like, that has nothing to do with actual witchcraft. Now, Salem now as a city is full of practicing witches. So that's the interesting irony. And so I was actually in Salem last weekend visiting friends and family. I have a lot of friends and family there. Sebastian Crane, tour guide who's quoted in the Salem chapters, he was leading a group of folks around and telling some historic details. And he asked, so if you were to say something about, you know, how you feel about Salem, what would you say? Like, what is your couple of words? And I just blurted cognitive dissonance. <laughs> because I really just do feel like the fact that the police cars have witches on them riding brooms when the law was killing quote unquote witches 400 years ago, it just really blows your mind. Like it is. But I love the town and the people of the town are great. OK, so this was actual rise of witchcraft. I, I honestly think witchcraft is very personal. And I think it's like people wanting to sort of take the power back. I think that when traditional religious structures have failed people, people turn to personal sources of spirituality. And I think witchcraft is one of the most personal things you can do. It is a personal practice. Now, yes, there's covens and everything. But in terms of it is about trying to make something happen for yourself because society is failing you, because religion's failing you, because structures are failing you. It's inevitable that while the gap between the rich and the poor is just, it is gilded age level and the robber barons of the 19th century are the hedge fund managers of today. But we're also talking the billionaires are so exponentially more rich than even the robber barons were. Like it's just, we're in this space where literally the numbers don't even make sense and they're completely unsustainable. So what are you going to do? You're going to want to try to go after a practice which creates manifestation for yourself because no one else is going to help you. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's why witchcraft is on the rise. Andrea? I agree completely with that. Absolutely. I I think you're 100% right with that. Like people are just, they look at the numbers, as you say, and they don't even make sense. And it's about finding that middle path, you know, the path that works for you personally. And when it comes to magic and capitalism, they don't mix. You can't monetize magic. You can't commodify it. You can't restrict it. It's available to everyone. It's like there is no joining witch. You are a witch if you look within yourself and find your own power. You know, like you, yeah. it, it, it's something that can never be created or destroyed and it cannot be commodified. And I think that's what's so appealing about it. And 
My favorite witch isn't really considered a witch at all. She's considered a Catholic saint. It's Hildegard von Bingen. Am I saying that right? Bingen. It's Bingen. Bingen. Thank you, my mm-hmm. German pronouncer. Hildegard von Bingen, who was that mystic and that nun and that poet and that abbess. And was she or was she not the first person to add hops to beer? I believe she was. She may have been. I, be- I believe well, she great was. Job. Girly Drinks by Mallory O'Meara. I read that in Hero, my hero. And it's all about finding that context, that metaphorical abbey where you can be safe and you can create your own magic. And yeah, it's just, uh, I think the appeal is very self-evident and it's really empowering, really beautiful and very necessary right now and probably always, quite honestly. And and just for those people who are interested in witchcraft, just please, like I mentioned with the sage, please just be responsible about the stuff that you're sourcing and try not to add on to capitalism's damage on the growing trend <laughs> and who it's hurting in terms of just like literal supply and demand when it comes to things that are actual sacred living plants and things like that. So like there's plenty of witchcraft that can be literally just grown in your own backyard. I was going to say, couldn't you grow your own white sage if you wanted it? So yeah. In, in the, yeah, in the right environments. Yes. And so I, I think people should start doing that because there is a serious problem and it just hurts my heart. I feel like it'd be more right. powerful that way too, if you cultivated it. And I completely agree. hundred percent. There's, I don't think there's any witch who would disagree with you on that. Right. What role does magic play in your work? Do you feel like it's infused in your, you know, you're both writers. Do you feel it when you're writing? Are there moments where you feel like I'm tapped into something that's bigger than who I am? Or even on the ghost tours as well. Are there moments? On the ghost tours. Oh, hell yeah. On the ghost tours, I actually feel like a medium because I will open my mouth and things will come out. And I'm like, I don't feel like I'm fully in control of this speech that I'm making right now. Like on my good tours, I feel like an instrument. And on good writing days, it's definitely definitely alchemy. It's definitely magic. It's hard to get there, though. I mean, those days are one out of a hundred. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I look at writing as mediumship for me. One of the ways in which I was able to kind of get my head around the capitalistic grind was I basically said to the spirit world, I was like, okay, guys, y'all have powered me, pushed me literally physically. Like, I feel like sometimes push. I'm being pushed towards writing about you, the spirits, all my life. So I'm going to give control of my career over to y'all because I can't deal with the corporeal reality of publishing being an insane industry and everything else being an insane industry. So I'm just going to give that over to y'all because it's making me miserable to think about the ins and outs of everything. And that was a huge help. And then I just was like, and I'm just going to keep writing because that is what I know and that is what I am evidently good at. And so writing is mediumship for me because I do feel like I am serving the spirit world's energies as I write. I am writing about these people and these pasts and making correlations relations to our modern world. And even if I'm not necessarily tapping into one particular voice, then I'm kind of talking about things in general. Sometimes I will get very connected to one particular voice. Like I went and I prayed at Sarah Winchester's grave in Connecticut. I went to see her grave to basically ask her permission to write about her. And I wanted to like pray to to be able to do her justice because I had come to care about her deeply in my research about her. So, and I hope that that love shines through. I mean, I'm not the only person to write about Sarah Winchester. Colin Dickey does a great chapter about the Winchester house in Ghostland, but he's not writing about Sarah Winchester in the same level of love that I'm writing about Sarah Winchester. 
So that's that's a difference there, you know. So there is that sense that Andrea and I both share about like opening our mouths and things are coming out that are beyond us because we try to take our ego out of this if at all possible because we really are trying to make sure that we want you to learn about these people, the people. We don't want to be like, hey, look at me and how I'm writing about this person. Like I'm really not. Yes, I'm proud of my work. And yes, I do take great pride in what I do and how I craft things. And I love compliments. Of course, who doesn't? But at the end of the day, I really am trying to serve a, a greater purpose in that without that then making me rethink everything. I'm like, oh my God, am I fulfilling my purpose or whatever? But just in terms of practical witchy stuff, it's like I have my labradorite that sits by where I am and my shadow quartz because that's the most sort of conducive to the spirits of all of the quartzes and various other things. So yeah, like I definitely, I'm resonant with crystals and stuff and I always wear things and and some of them are protective and everyone finds there's whatever aspects tactile that they're resonant with. I'm very talismanic, I guess mm-hmm. I would say. That's my personal approach. I'm very talismanic in that little things that have personal significance. It's like this, this for me would be if I was in Dracula and a vampire was coming at me, I would hold this up. This would be like my cross or something, you know, <laughs> so like whatever it's a token of faith or whatever. It's like, but also I also really respect the historic resonance that faith symbols have. And so it's like, I feel like I could, because of my sheer respect for a cross or a Dharma wheel or a star of David, I could also hold that up because I believe in those pieces I believe in that as conducive of something that is protective and is sacred for others. And I honor all of that. So I feel like, you know, I I try to be very like interface in my approach to everything. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. And I really love that concept of giving it over to the ghost because I'm a Capricorn. So I tend, I'm like always working all the time. I have a million (laughs) jobs and I'm like you, Andrea, where I am definitely neurodivergent a hundred percent. And, and so needing to not work for other people. And it's just the big, like, I have to take care of everything and I have to be the one who's responsible. And I think there's something so freeing about just the thought of saying, Okay, you fuckers, <laughs> in a loving way, in a loving way. Oh, yeah. No, I like, see. With like, all, all love. You, you uh, deeply amazing fuckers. You are calling me to this. So why don't I let you run the show? And I will be, as like St. Francis Assisi said, I'll be the instrument of peace. Yes. Like I'll be the thing and you work through me. And then it takes all that pressure off of you. I mean, not to say that you won't still have your ups and downs. We're humans, but it seems like that's a good intention to have as an artist. It's helpful. I mean, the ghosts won't make your deadlines, though. So like you have right. to do that. The Capricorn has to stay intact for those things. <laughs> yes, <Right>. yes. <laughs> All right, people. Well, I, I have one last question, and it's just, do you have anything else that's sort of needling your mind about your work and or about the paranormal that you'd like to share with the listeners just as sort of a last hurrah? Well, one thing that I was thinking while we were discussing work and magic and writing and magic, I was thinking that the one in 100 days where writing transports you to this magical place is wonderful, but it's also really, again, very much its work. And maybe I feel that way because it is so linear and it's so language-based. And if my work was painting or dancing or music, I might feel different. I might have a different mindset when I went into it. But because Writing physically mimics a lot of the stuff we do at work, work, sitting down, sitting still, typing, 
thinking, verbalizing. For me, it does still feel like work, work that I love and I'm called to and I think I was born to do, but it's work. And when I think about actual magic, for me, it's always outside. It's in nature. It's in that forest with the birch bark tree that lent me a little here and there <laughs> when I was at my poorest. It's in the ocean. Again, it's like, it's it's not really work where I find my magic. It's outside. It's in the natural world where I find my magic. And that's what makes me happiest. And that's what is really beautiful and spiritual to me in a lovely, freeing, non-denominational way. When I'm out there, you know, that's also a place that intersects with ghosts and spirits really beautifully. And depending on how isolated it is and what time of day it is, it can be a bit spooky or not. I don't know. I often will compare when people talk about, quote, hunting ghosts. I'm like, well, if you went out into the woods and you, quote, hunted a bear, say, not that I condone that, it would involve a lot of waiting and being very still and a lot of nothing. A lot of nothing. (laughs) A lot of nothing. There's a whole lot of nothing out there, people, but it's just those quiet moments of waiting, right, that we pass most of our life in. Yeah, yeah. I think most people think that paranormal investigations are just like, this very exciting thing, but it's actually incredibly boring for much Mm -hmm. of it. I mean, you were Mm -hmm. just sitting there Mm -hmm. for hours. I'd rather be in the woods, baby. Then maybe I could see Sasquatch and that would be awesome. That would be awesome. It really would. (laughs) How about you, Lana? Do you have any sort of last words? Well, I mean, I guess just I... I hope that folks will take this book and ask their own questions, too. This has been a very interesting ongoing dialogue that Andrea and I are having with each other, with these spirits, with this book, with these contexts. It's not none of this is like a closed matter. I just encourage people to keep having the discussions that we're having. It's like we're having this great discussion. And so I just want people to have these discussions where they're keeping their hearts open and both protecting themselves and also trying to seek better solutions, better, kinder solutions for this world. And that can be on the smallest scale or on maybe you come up with a really big idea that can change something. But all of it is incremental towards whatever that better world is. And and for me, a better world is inclusive and not exclusive. I'm that way about religion. If it's inclusive, thumbs up. If it's exclusive, I I want nothing to do with it because if there is a God, the a concept of God's love is is endless, limitless, and I don't want to countenance anything that isn't that because then we're all such interesting, unique individuals, all of us, every single one of us. So there is such power and diversity and in individuality, but at the same time, we also have to live in a society. Yeah. So on how that can we do that? <laughs> on that, on that note, please pay for the book. <laughs> Or, or like, don't get it on Kindle Unlimited. Pay for it or get it at a library. Please, your local independent bookshop or your local. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Don't steal Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Don't and download I, a PDF. I will <laughs> yeah. ask my local queer feminist bookshops to get it in their stores too. Like, Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll request it. And honestly, I really did love this book. Like I I get a lot of books, and I'm like, I don't know. It's so dense, or it'll be like. I don't know. I shouldn't say anything, but <laughs> this book, I, it, it's just, it's, it got me to start reading again. So it's, Oh, you know, that's, that's an honor. Yeah. So that's a gift in itself. And and you guys are just such dang good writers too. I just was blown away by it and I hope to keep in touch. I'm going to definitely come and do the Burrows of the Dead tour awesome. at some point. I'm in Louisville now. My wife and I just moved here from LA. So it's been a 
big transition. Oh, wow. So in yeah. Kentucky? Yeah, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. I'm from Cincinnati. So when I'm in Cincinnati, I will come down and visit you when I'm in. Yes. I'll be in Cincinnati for the, well, it's technically Columbus, but the Ohio on a Book Festival happens in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And yeah. I think it's April. So I'm going to let you know what weekend I'll be there because I'm going to swing down to Louisville and I'm going to do some stock signings down there. So oh, I will nice. come and say hi. Yeah. You can grab a coffee. I would love that. Yeah. And Louisville's great. I love Louisville. It's great. We were very pleasantly surprised. And Andrea, you could never drive in LA. Have you been to LA? I have, but I don't think I could drive there either. Oh my God, you die. You would die. You would have to get like a, a hard plastic thing to put over the handle so that you didn't like <laughs> break through the leather. It's so gnarly. But yes, the other thing too is that I'm working on this new episodic show and there's a, a rotating auxiliary cast, which is based on the location that we're in. And, you know, I wanted to wait and see if we had a good vibe. And I, I just really love your energy. And I, I'd love to consider y'all if you're interested in that, if we're in the New York area and you want to be like a researcher on one of the episodes or something. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yes. Count yeah. us in. And I have a lot of Ohio connections. So if you end up in that area and I have my background is I was a tour guide in various places in Ohio. I was a tour guide in various places in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then New York. So, yeah, well, there's paranormal everywhere, as you know, but one of the main reasons that we moved here was a bunch of synchronicities and the paranormal drew us here. It is so fucking weird. This whole strip up to Ohio is yes. just bizarre. Like it is so interesting. It's I love it. But let me not take more of your time. Thank you so much for taking the time. You guys fucking roll. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This was delightful. And thanks for creating an environment where I felt safe to talk about some of the stuff that I don't always bring up. So yeah, yeah this absolutely. was really fun. And if you come up with like any really good ghost stories in your area that you're like, you should put this in volume two, let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we can quote you because we really like to talk to people. So then we will quote you and then it's just it's a cool mutual admiration society that then goes into print and then people can look you up about. So yeah, yeah. And I love it. I am all here for plugging women's and female presenting people's and queer mm -hmm. people's work, people of color. Like if we just help each other and it, there's no, it, it doesn't have to be competitive. We could just be like, dude, this is cool. You are cool. Would you like yes. to play with me? You yes. know, it's like, done. yes. All right, people go do Thank your you. lives. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. We will all be in touch. Well, there you have it. Okay, we are back in business. <laughs> I'm crazy. Okay, so <laughs> go buy A Haunted History of Invisible Women. It is so fucking good. True stories of America's ghosts from a lens that needs to be lensed. And, you know, I'm just saying again, like you see the episode art for this freaking episode I went ham on this book. I was just like screaming while I read it. There are highlighter marks all over it. It's amazing. Came out in 2022 and it'll be relevant forever. You can check out what Andrea and Leanna are doing at Linktree slash A Haunted History. I encourage you to order the book somewhere other than Amazon. That would be awesome. You will see all of the places you can order on that Linktree. And if you find yourself in New York City, Definitely consider visiting Burrows of the Dead 
I have heard only incredible things. And if you want to check out more about that, that's at burrowsofthedead.com. And if you want to see what Leanna is up to specifically, you can check out her work at leannareneheber.com. And again, as always, those links will be in the show notes. Go look at them. There's lots of things coming soon. There's going to be some ads. That's right. It's going to be great. There's going to be a new intro at some point, but we didn't want another fucking year to go by without giving you some content. So happy to be back. Oh, and happy in bulk, y'all. Hey, shit. Did we even get through all of them? (laughs) Fuck. We'll come back to that. I promise. Love you. You're so pretty. Thank you for following the woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow the Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 